Welcome to Hacking the Self, integrating East and West, ancient wisdom with modern medicine. We'll explore holistic approaches to hacking your physical, mental, and emotional health through the prism of science, technology, and spirituality. Welcome to Hacking the Self. I'm Adrian Baker. Thank you so much for listening. Last week in my conversation with Spring Washam, we talked quite a bit about the hero's journey, which she detailed in her autobiography, A Fierce Heart. And today I'm really going to dive deeper into the idea of the hero's myth with my guest, Bernie Taylor. Bernie Taylor has written really an entire book on the idea of the hero's myth, an idea that, you know, he's borrowed heavily from Joseph Campbell and from Carl Jung before him. But what Bernie really does is interesting. He takes it back into earlier hunter-gatherer prehistoric times. So, Campbell talked a lot about the hero's myth and Jungian psychology and the archetypes in terms of how they manifested themselves in mythologies from some of the earliest civilizations on earth on up to the present. But Bernie's going back even earlier, really, to hunter-gatherer times and talks about how the idea of the monomyth is reflected in cave art in a particular area that he found, which is very interesting. And then later in the conversation, he talks about how the work of some other artists, such as Picasso's one example, reflects the idea of the monomyth as well. So, just to give you some background on Bernie, Bernie Taylor is an independent naturalist and author whose research explores the mythological connections and biological knowledge among prehistoric, indigenous, and ancient peoples. He enjoys the great outdoors in his home state of Oregon and the exploration of inner space. And just to give you a little bit of context on what Bernie's book is about, so it's called Before Orion, and the premise behind it is the hero's journey monomyth, which is at the core of stories worldwide among indigenous peoples, the ancients, in our modern society. Before Orion, Finding the Face of the Hero explores a deeper route for this monomyth by looking at how hunter-gatherers viewed themselves within the natural and spiritual worlds through Paleolithic cave art from 40,000 years ago. Bernie is a fascinating guy whose insights are really worthwhile for anyone who is interested in the, in the idea of myth and history and culture. So, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Bernie. Your continued support makes future episodes possible. You can help by heading over to patreon.com slash hacking the self. Let me start, Bernie, by thanking you so much for your time and for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Adrian, for having me today. It's a long way between Oregon and Thailand, but we seem to be connecting via the virtual world. That's right. Thank you to the World Wide Web. Thanks to Al Gore. <laughs> Before we get rolling, I was wondering if you could give us a little bit about your background. I'm going to include your, your bio and kind of offer that for folks in the show notes, but I'd love before we dive into kind of your work, just to kind of give us some background on you, just sort sure. of what's your training and how'd you get interested in this line of work? Well, I came into this world through chronobiology as a naturalist, someone who was interested in how salmon 
time themselves? How does a salmon know when to spawn? How learn to run up the streams and so on? How do they do it all in synchrony? And I wrote a previous book titled Biological Time that was truly a scientific work. I had a lot of resources with people who helped me. And it wasn't based on any training I had from the university system, but it was more of a, a love of life type of passion. And it was purely scientific work. And I, I wrote for some journals. And I gave lots of scientific presentations, all that sort of stuff. And I stumbled on something. And it had to do with timing mechanisms of, of animals as we see them today. And the synchrony or the, the, the visualization of that in the Paleolithic art from Europe. And that was a chapter in biological time that I, after I wrote the book, I did the presentations and the papers, all that sort of stuff. And I put it away for 12 years because I had a daughter. I have a daughter. And she was growing up and I was helping her with sports and school and all that sort of stuff. And I came back to it just uh, four years ago with some ideas and, you know, little ideas became larger ideas and ultimately big ideas, at least in my head, which I ultimately ended up writing this last book. It was a journey. It was a hero's journey, my own journey that is now, it's my time to tell the story now. So you just referenced their hero's journey, sort of that famous idea from Campbell and really before him, Jung. I'm curious how you got interested in the works of Jung and Campbell and how they've impacted you. Well, I completely stumbled upon the depth psychology of Jung and really understanding the hero's journey. In the United States here, we use Myers-Briggs for work. We've seen Star Wars and we've seen videos or documentaries about Joseph Campbell and George Lucas. That's like, that's mainstream. We all, we all see this stuff. But to actually have read volumes of books and Jung's collective works and reading um, a number of uh, Joseph Campbell's work, that came in the last two years. And it didn't come until after I recognized most of the things that I did in the, the Paleolithic images. And I was asking the questions of, someone must have recognized this, and where does this all come from? And that led me into depth psychology as one of the many answers to resolving these two great mysteries of one. And the great mysteries are, where do we come from? And where are we going to? And that can be either viewed as from the individual, you know, pre-birth and after death, or as the collective. You know, how did humanity come to have consciousness or recognize, at least recognize consciousness? And then after death as or after where do we go as a civilization, where does our consciousness go? And I can't answer either of those at this time, and I'm not sure if anybody can. But what I can answer is the question of what happened 40,000 years ago? And it's a fascinating story. I never believed that I would have ended up where I am today. It's been quite the journey. I actually even find that far more interesting that you got into Jung and Campbell only after you've discovered the images. And in a way, I mean, that gives a degree of not only intrigue, but credibility because you weren't looking at your subject matter with a certain kind of confirmation bias. Oh, yeah, none at all. As, as I said, I, I knew Young from the Myers-Briggs, which I've we've used for many years, but I was pretty much clueless on Young besides that. I've attended many seminars, and of course, I've, I own many of the collected works at this point, <laughs> uh, many of the volumes of collected works. But no, there wasn't, as I came, I came this from the naturalist, a person who's interested in, in plants and animals, and the knowledge by ancient prehistoric um, hunter-gatherer 
peoples. It was not from the psychology or from consciousness or these journeys into humanity itself. It was clearly about how did the timing mechanisms work and how it was transferred into the Paleolithic caves. So yeah, I was not in the, you know, I did yoga and I was familiar with these sort of things and I continue to do yoga, but I was not in this realm of um, consciousness studies. Right. Okay. Fascinating. So you alluded a little bit to how you got interested in, in your current work before Orion. Can you perhaps just kind of give folks who aren't familiar with it, just sort of an introduction to the main thesis of the book? Absolutely. The oldest cave art that is has been chronicled or dated is in the north of Spain near Bilbao in the Cantabria region in a cave court called El Castillo. And in El Castillo, there's a panel that has a bunch of dots and from stencil hands, and it was dated to about 40,000 years ago. and has to do with um, material that layered over the red dots, and they can lay, then measure the date of the red dots. And that was to about 40, so 40,000 years ago. It's not a very interesting image. It's on a curved surface. It's you know some jagged features, tough to take a picture of. And so the media ran with another image from the cave that had lots of dots and a great pattern called the gallery of discs. And the first one was called the gallery of hands. And this gallery of discs, it streams right across. It's absolutely beautiful, about 90 discs, breathtaking. And the only thing that people have had seen on this 10 meter panel were these red discs. And they, they take you in psychologically, you know, at the core, your brainstem type of thinking or non-thinking. Well, the, everybody got captivated by these red discs. And when I was working on a, a second, this new book, I was looking, counting red discs to work on the timing of the, of the animals, um, as I did with pre other caves from uh, much other time periods, about 7,000 years, 17,000 years ago in Lascaux. And I said to myself, you know, that's a huge panel, 10 meters across. There's got to be more than red discs in there. And I said to myself, well, the most common animal in Paleolithic art is the horse, and it's typically a pregnant mare. So I'll go looking for a pregnant mare. And as I started looking for her, I started, other things started jumping out. And it wasn't an elephant. And then there's a lion with a mane. And then there's a monkey of sorts, which I didn't understand what, I didn't know what, recognize what kind of monkey it was. And I contacted a friend from my distant past, my early 20s. I did the, the nomad life like you. I lived in China for four years in Beijing during the Tiananmen Times Square period. And that time at George Shallow, who's now considered the world's foremost wildlife biologist or field wildlife biologist. And I contacted George and I told him what I was working on. And I asked him, can you identify these animals? And we went through them one by one and we identified many more, including a giraffe and some animals that were purely European and Iberian lynx. And so we had these through George, we, div we figured out which animals were from which place. And it turned out that all the European animals were on one side of the panel and all the African animals on the other side of the panel. And in the middle, there's a dolphin and there's a seal and there's a man swimming. And so what we had in this image was a, a journey from Europe or what is now Spain across the Strait of Gibraltar to Western North Africa, what is now Morocco. And when I was telling people about this and I was, I was testing people, I would show them the images to see what they would see in them because I was trying to learn what type of person can see more or less. And some people, everything just jumps out at once. Other people, they just can't stop from counting the red discs and the, the mind is just drawn into that. Well, that was about the time like people started saying to me, you know, there's this journey here and you just start thinking about Joseph Campbell. 
And I started researching that further and going down that road. But so on this journey that is in the gallery of discs, which is around 34,000 years ago, at the oldest, near to the oldest of our man's known artwork, we have this person who takes a journey from Europe to Africa and he swims across the war and then he goes back again. And what's fascinating about this image is not that we we have this this giraffe in the European image, which is the first connection that we have other than DNA, that there was a migration between Europe and Africa. And many people have argued over the years, well, since there is no archaeological evidence between the two, maybe people evolved in two different places and never mixed. And there's that argument's been, been made by many people. So we have we have this journey. And then we have all these animals and the person the in the story, as you, you, you kind of pick up as you see the, the images, that as he travels, he meets each animal and he, he gains strength from those animals. Just as you might say someone runs like a cheetah or flies like an eagle or has the strength of a bear. Well, the characters in the story meet all these animals and they you can see the, the emotions in the animals that they, they pick up, the characters the hero picks up. And this panel is, is a map. As you go down it from one place to another, you encounter animals that are in that place. So it's not just a story of someone's journey, but it actually tells you where in that journey you'll find these places. So if you took an airplane now and you start, you flew around the world, someone dropped you off in a parachute and you land in a place that you saw wild pandas, well, you'd say, well, I'm in China. Or if you saw an Iberian lynx in the wild, the few left, you'd be in Spain. So there are unique animal identifiers in geographic places. And this one was very specific animals that we can still see today. And Iberian lynx is one in Spain and giraffes on the other. And there's also an elephant and a Barbary macaw and other animals for Africa. And so that was fascinating itself. It was just absolutely incredible that we have this story going back so far back. And then what happened is I found the horse. I didn't find the horse to the near the end of this writing the book. And the horse made all the difference because if you put the horse next to this man and then you have this eagle, which is next to him, as you go down the line, you have a dolphin, you have a seal and you reach another man, you have a lion and then you have a bear. We're actually traveling through the night sky. You travel through the, the Greek constellations and the man at one end is Hercules. Then the horse becomes Pegasus. The eagle is Aegea. You have the dolphins become Pisces, the constellation. The seal is Cetus, the sea monster. The man at the other end becomes Orion. And then as we go up, we find the, the lion is Leo and then the bear is Ursa Major. And if you stood out in the night sky in the Northern Hemisphere in late June, you know, maybe two or three hours after the sunsets, you'll see most of those constellations. And you can take the same image, put it beforehand, get it in your head, and you can stand out and look at the night sky and you can map your way across just as someone would have done 34,000 years ago. And so you've had people in your show, you know, mention the hermetic tradition of as above, so below. Well, this is where it comes from. The Greeks had been to this place, they had been to these caves, as the Egyptians and the Romans, and they borrowed the images to make their own stories. And that's kind of the, the long and short of the, the hero's journey and how the constellations are embedded in the cave art and these clearly defined characters that give a geographic presence to where one is. So that was my, I believe that was my five minutes, right? Well, let me pause you because honestly, I, I think that was really interesting, but I'm still not 100% clear what your thesis is. Just from saying that, I'm imagining to someone, because I've, I've read the first chapter and you know I've read the reviews and things like that. So if you had to summarize in one sentence, 
just to give people an overview, what is the main thesis of your book? What would you say that is? That the journey of mankind is a journey within us that we carry in our dreams and we see through mythology. We see these images in the night sky. We also see it within ourselves. And this story goes back at least 34,000 years ago. It's carried to people's all over the world because this is where those original stories as depicted in art came from. Okay. That's so long, great. That's a run on sentence. Yeah, it was it was a short paragraph, but still that was that was the, <laughs> the snapshot I was looking for. So you're kind of extending Joseph Campbell's work with really looking at applying Jung's framework of archetypes and the hero's journey. And, and Campbell did that a lot with sort of early civilizations. And you're really doing that with hunter-gatherer societies. Is that a fair assessment? Well, well Campbell, in fairness, he worked on hunter-gatherers because he looked at Native Americans. Okay. Um, and he did look at the caves in Europe, but he looked at the images that other people had drawn and the synopsises that other people had made. He didn't see what we're looking at today, even though it was available. He didn't see this. So he didn't, this is what he was looking for. And if someone had taken this high resolution digital image that we have today, that we can see all this, Joseph Campbell would have seen it. It's what he was looking for. And some other people of his age were also seeking this truth of sorts. So I found what he was looking for in the caves. I took the story back that he was looking for. Sorry, can you say thousand years? Where the caves are precisely? So this particular cave, El Castillo, is in, in the northwestern part of Spain near Bilbao. Okay. So not only is it not it's right not across the Strait of Gibraltar, it's way up north in Spain. This person had quite the journey. Right. Okay. Fascinating. When Campbell looked. Did he actually look? I don't know that because I know he was a college professor. And I know he also, you know, based off of his training, you know, I don't think Campbell didn't have the knowledge to read things in their original languages. I mean, I think he took a little bit of Sanskrit and Greek, but I don't think he was proficient in those. I think Campbell was someone who really relied on other people's secondary sources and then sort of extrapolated these bigger themes. Absolutely. And Campbell, his book, Hero of Thousand Faces, the first few paragraphs, he starts off to say how he was heavily influenced by Young, by the Swiss psychoanalyst Young. And Campbell wrote the portable Young. He was a huge Jungian. Um, and what the most significant thing of what Campbell did is he brought depth psychology and these ideas of, of Carl Jung into mainstream America. My, I have a daughter in high school and they study arc in their language arts. They study archetypal characters via the framework of Joseph Campbell. So they, they write papers by analyzing all the characters in the, the literary works. So Joseph Campbell made young mainstream, just as Myers-Briggs did the same for personality types. Right. So what led you specifically to this cave? What was kind of your, your tip off in terms of how to locate this particular piece of evidence? Well, in 2012, the dating of the 40,000-year-old panel had come to the press. And so I was looking for the, the oldest cave. <laughs> That's really what it was. Because <laughs> okay. I figured it out for about 17,000 years ago at the Cave of Lascaux in the Dorgon region of France. And there's, I 
figured out a whole bunch of animals, how the nomenclature works at times, their seasonal, their mating and the dropping of the young and all that sort of stuff. Um, and that was in biological time. But I, I felt I had to go back further in time. And that took me to the El Castillo cave, first the panel, the disc, the panel of the hands. But as I said earlier, you is not a lot to see in the panel of hands because you couldn't take a good picture of it. And the media showed the panel of discs instead. And many millions of people, it could be tens of millions of people, saw that image of the gallery of discs, but didn't look beyond the red discs because it's an optical illusion that's brainstem dominated. We're drawn to red, just like women's lipstick and red stop signs. Um, if you drive down any strip here in America, actually you won't see it, but you'll be drawn to the red in McDonald's and Burger King and DQ and all these places. Madison Avenue picked up on this one a long time ago. And this const this knowledge of the psychology, I believe, um, goes back to this paleolithic time, at least 34,000 years ago in the gallery of discs. You know, it's mind boggling. In our modern times, we think that knowledge is built upon. So we're kind of like the we're at the top of this this tower right now, this ivory tower. And cavemen thirty four thousand years ago was barely scraping the the dirt on the bottom. But psychologically, or or we would say spiritually, now they were pretty much in the same place because they recognized things about themselves, their who they were as conscious beings in a world of other beings that we now call wild animals or domesticated animals, they recognize themselves in the wholeness of the world because they were animists. In your, in your previous shows, have you ever had somebody talk about animism before? I have not. You probably should define it for some people in the audience who aren't going to know what that is. That's good. So Columbus arrived on the shores of what is now North America and the Caribbean. He met Native Americans. They were animists. They believed that the mountains had spirits, the rivers had spirits, the winds spoke, and the rivers, the tide was a, a life form. They believed that the animal beings around them were, in fact, animal beings as opposed to wild animals. And they worked in concert with them. And Native Americans, typical in their story, the folk tales and mythology, you have animals talking to each other or you have animals talking to people. Just as we have cartoons that have this, the same type of, of dialogues today with characters, well, it was real to them. And Jung said that myths are, are things that actually happened. And I would suggest that myths are things that are actually experienced. So they're experienced in the mind of the, the conscious mind of the individual versus not in the, the scientific happening that could be redone. And of course, this story, we have this cave image of this man who travels across land, this journey into Africa, and the mirror of the night sky is something that it happened because he could see it, because he could experience it. But in fact, there's no giraffe and there's no elephant and there's no eagle in these constellations in the night sky. Man projects his psyche into the cosmos, and we make that our experience versus a river runs. In fact, happens. But the constellations are completely projected from our minds. And that's the connection with Jung and the essence of this whole thing that goes back to 34,000, that man had this closer connection to this world that we now call animism. Right. And that seems to be to sort of have some connection to worship gods as basically part of the natural environment, rivers, animals, that pretty much seems to be the the earliest developmental stages of religion that seems to have happened across time and place as well. Exactly. Yeah. 
It's the trunk of the tree. Right. So before, you know, we sort of talk about this, I, I think I want to be careful making not assumptions about what some of our listeners might know or not know, because I want to ask you what really some of the major archetypes and symbols that jumped out for you when you looked at this work. But before you you answer that, do you mind just sort of giving a basic explanation for some of our listeners what Jung's idea of the archetype was? Well, he had archetypal characters. And I believe that Star Wars is the perfect way to explain it. Most of us, we've seen Star Wars. And in Star Wars, you have Luke. Luke is the hero. And Luke goes on this journey and he meets magical characters um, that assist him. He meets the wizard, which is Obi-Wan and Yoda. And that, that same character, that wizard character is Gandalf in the, the Lord of the Rings. And there's a whole bunch of them in Harry Potter. So these archetypal characters, when we see them, the stories of, is evoked. When we find the good wizard, we recognize he's there to help the hero. And if we see the damsel in distress, we recognize that the hero is going to help the damsel in distress. When we see Darth Vader, who's battling with Luke, we recognize he's the bad guy. But ultimately, the story turns a little bit becomes his father, right? But we find those same – Golem is the bad guy or, or actually the many bad guys in The Lord of the Rings. But we see these characters, the story is evoked because we, we culturally recognize these archetypes. Now, what Jung said was that people recognize archetypes that they're not previously exposed to. Therefore, it's they're carried within ourselves in the collective unconscious. And many people will say, well, they're social constructs and all that sort of stuff, but they're not. Because we have the same archetypes all around the world with different societies. And everybody can pick up the same stories regardless of – we can tell where the story is going and who the characters are despite where we come from. So it's that's the concept of archetypes. And there's many of them. You have the old and the young. You have the, the mother and the child. You have the good guy and the bad guy. You have the spiritual helper. You could have the, the, the bad spiritual a person who, you know, the Wicked Witch of the East, you know, Wicked Witch of the West, and, and the Wizard of Oz. And, but these are all characters that we recognize. And there, it's Jung said it's not just through the stories. He says that we recognize them because it's somehow deep in our memory in, in this collective unconscious that we carry through within us. And I would agree with him. Yeah, I heard you say in another interview that this idea that the archetype is is in the brain. And I think this is what Young meant as well. I also think this is what makes it really hard to grasp for certain people who have a really, who are adopting a very sort of straight rationalist, which is very modern scientific materialist approach. And I, I'm curious at all if you're familiar with the work of Jordan Peterson by chance. He talks a lot about Yes, I yeah. am very much. Yeah. Yeah, he's a Jungian. He's, he's a huge Jungian, but I was going to say his discussions with Harris, with Sam Harris kind of really foreshadowed, or I should say reflected the difference in those two approaches in terms of people who see... Now, agreed. Now, here's we have information now through my work that Peterson doesn't have and Jung didn't have, and um, Joseph Campbell didn't have as well. We can add an archetype to this record. And it is the avianoid. It's the man who tri- becomes the bird man, becomes the angel of sorts. Now, Jung had a spiritual helper that he called Philemon. And he spoke, he wrote about Philemon in his Red Book. And Philemon was a, a bird man that Jung had conversations with. And in those conversations, he developed much of his work. 
And that's, of course, not something that's ever going to end up in, in high schools and literary classes. And that's how Joseph Campbell comes through to soften all this stuff out. So Young probably wouldn't have recognized the avianoid as an archetype because he himself was having those conversations with that, with that, that avianoid, which who was Philemon. Now that avianoid shows up in Abrahamic religions, the angel Gabriel comes to Muhammad to help him with his prophecies. The angel comes, Gabriel comes to Mother Mary, Mother of Jesus, who tells her that she's going to have a child. The same Gabriel comes to David, the father of Judaism, to help him interpret his dreams. That same character is shown in this arch, this avianoid character is shown in architecture, in art throughout the world and throughout time. Hunter gatherers throughout a nomadic people and pastoral people throughout in South, in, in South America and North America and Africa everywhere have this same character. It's even among the Japanese have this, this person, this blue man. And it's fairly common in Siberia as well among shamanic peoples. So Jung didn't see this person as a archetypal character, this being, this avianoid. He saw it as this help. Now, this is where it gets interesting. The first character that I mentioned, which is in, in Spain in the north of the panel, he's a man with a mask. You can tell he's a man with a mask because his chin drops from underneath. And he kind of blends into an, a human form as well in the same picture. So what we find in this image is that the avianoid, this angel, is really a transitionary form between the human being and let's call it the celestial world. It's the intermediary. And that intermediary came about through Horus among the ancient Egyptians. So how could all these people around the world, I will agree that if we all came from the same place, we have all the same stories. But this avianoid, this angel is so prevalent in every society and still it's in the, it's in the dances of Native Americans in the powwows. They still dance. They have the chicken dance, which is an avianoid. The prairie chicken dance, I should say. It's in us. And people, even it came to Young and he spoke with this avianoid and he didn't even recognize it as such an archetype. So if people don't believe that it's in us, you have to look at these images and just see where we're coming from. But that original avianoid, it is a man that becomes the bird, but it's a man that's behind the mask. And you can see his chin underneath and you can see other body parts and so on. That is clearly a mix between between the two. It's something we carry with us. We sing it in songs. And that's the beauty of this whole thing is that we carry these, these archetypes within us so that we understand the song, we understand the story as it's moving along. That gives us the context to put the big picture together. I'm curious. So first of all, that's fascinating about the avianoid. Yeah, that's not an archetype that I'd really had pointed out to me before, but that makes a lot of sense. And I certainly... You didn't get that one in Sunday school well, either, did I didn't you? learn any of this in Sunday school. <laughs> if, I, if they taught me young, I undoubtedly would have stayed. You know, if they taught it as a metaphor and as something deeper, I, w- I would have found it, you know, more plausible yeah. and intriguing. So you talked about one major archetype and symbol, and I'm curious, what were some of the really other major kind of archetypes and symbols you found in these caves that really you think transcend time? These are the big two. These are the, really the big two. And they go up, and Jung saw these as well. Among the dreams of people, and, and Jung had analyzed more than 15,000 dreams, he found that the two most common 
inorganic characters. So we're not talking avionoids and we're not talking um, um, spiritual leaders. We're talking physical things. And he found it, it to be a body of water. He said it was a lake and a, cos- and a mountain, which is the cosmic mountain. Okay. And if you go around the world, it's fascinating. It's either we worship or we try to climb these cosmic mountains. We, we set our home so the, you know, the, the window opens up to them. We, you know, we list it on the, the real estate brochure. You can see the mountain. We stand in front of the mountains. If a kid has got a, their earliest paintings after they do, you know, themselves, their dog and their family, they do a mountain. It's within us. If you remember that, remember um, Close Encounters, Spielberg was brilliant. He picked up the cosmic mountain, which was Devil's Tower, uh, the Black Hills. That this cosmic mountain was in their head as well. Which, if you go around the world, you find these cosmic mountains in every religion, in every culture. And if you don't have a cosmic mountain, you make them. So if you're in the flatlands of the Maya, you build pyramids. You're in Giza, you build a pyramid because it's flat. And when they stopped building pyramids in Egypt, they went the Valley of the Kings. They built tombs that are under a mountain, if that looks very pyramidal shaped. And in the Paleolithic image, this gallery of discs, we find the man takes that night journey across water because he's doing it under the stars. And then he goes into to Morocco and he climbs the Cosmic Mountain. And the Cosmic Mountain is Jebel Tolokal, which we call Mount Atlas, which is the highest mountain in West North Africa. So we're drawn to this because it's in us, the mountain and the, 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 water, the night journey across water. It's in our dreams. And I think the most brilliant telling of this is through Billy Joel. Billy Joel sang a song, The River of Dreams. And he sings that in the middle of the night, I go walking in my sleep from the mountains of faith to the river so deep. He's looking for something, something secret he's lost. And Billy Joel comes up with a song when he's married. At the time, he's married to Christy Brinkley. So you can imagine Billy Joel, if you're married to Christy Brinkley, I mean, what are you doing dreaming about? These sort of things. So he gets out of bed. <laughs> he gets out of bed and he goes to the shower. He's trying to shake this song in his head. He can't. And so eventually he sits down and writes it, he writes it down because he has to like get it out of his system. He still doesn't want to sing it because he recognizes it's a spiritual song. He's not a spiritual person. And there's many interviews about Billy Joel and this River of Dream song. And he still doesn't know what he's – he never talked to like a psychologist about this. I'm not a psychoanalyst. They all would have said, hey, Billy, it's the classic archetype. It's your River of Dreams is the river of uh, transformation that leads to death. It's the, it's the river that St. John baptized Jesus in. It's the body of war that, that um, Jonah crossed in, in the whale. And it's this body of water that the Strait of Gibraltar that you cross from Europe to Africa. And on the other side is the Cosmic Mountain, which is Jebotolokau. Now, this is what it gets really interesting, is that the oldest Homo sapien or remains um, that we have, fossils, are at Jebel Erhud from 300,000 years ago. They were, they were dated within the last year. And that's the same place. So we have the oldest people that we know of, of Homo sapiens from the same place that we have this man that travels back and forth in the same place as a cosmic mountain. So I believe that these stories and that are carrying our dreams, they're so deep in our, our collective unconscious that we can't shake them. And even Billy Joel, he struggled to sing this song that ultimately came a hit. His most beautiful songs he did, but he struggled to do it. So the mountain in the ocean we can see as symbols, and I, I certainly see the universality of those. In terms of archetypes, in terms of characters, some of the ones that you mentioned earlier that Jung outlined, which of those did you see in, in these caves that you found and which seemed to be the most prevalent? 
You could pick just the few most prevalent. Yeah. Well, you have the clear one is the teacher and the apprentice. They're the dominant ones in the image. But what remember that the animists didn't see human characters, only just didn't only see human characters. They saw animals as beings. And so the most the dominant image becomes in all the Paleolithic art is the female, the pregnant mare. And among horse people recognize that the female, this lead mare, actually leads the herd. It's not the males. She eats first. She leads them to water. When they migrate, they all follow her. And she tells kind of the men what to do. What I believe that the Paleolithic artists were doing is, is they were projecting a matriarchal society through this pregnant mare. And they recognized the connection between the two. Picasso picked up the same archetypes and he used these two mares or two horses from Altamira, these, these masks. He put them in his first cubism image, which became the first image of modern art in 1907 is Les Dames de Avignon. He lifted the exact two masks from the Altamira cave and he put them onto two female characters in Les Dames de Avignon, the women of the street. Later, he uses horse many times. And one particular image is Guernica. We have, he borrows a horse from Rote Pernon Pair on the Agnes Day panel. We have this horse looking over its back. And he, he lifts the exact same image. But when Picasso describes what is who is the horse or what is the horse, he says that it's the people of Spain. And it's in the center of the image. And on two sides of the image, you have these you have these warring sides. You have you have the bull and the horse, a, a stallion on one side, and on the other side you got the bear. And of course, they're meta- they'd be metaphors for Russia, the bear, and the bull becomes um, Franco. And there's other characters in there who are on let's call the which became the axis in World War II. So the dominant image is that mare um, throughout Paleolithic art, which I believe, and it's Picasso borrowed to represent the female and the more not just not young girls or but really the the lead female the leader of a matriarchal society aside from picasso are there what other sort of prominent artists that people might know do you find really reflect the work of some of these archetypes so here's we're going to step back on that one first picasso never admitted to this so i'm the first one to explore this in my book Picasso you know, would walk out of the caves and would say things like, you know, you know, be, be, after this cave, everything is decadent, and none of us could have created anything like that. But no one had actually identified the exact images, you know, that in the caves that Picasso used, used in his work. The entire cubism form, how that we mix kind of, we kind of mix these layers together, kind of, if you have a, a slate floor that has all these different sizes of stone that are grotto together. That's cubism. And we have that throughout, in all of our artwork, we have it in our buildings. That came from Picasso. We have in our clothing. So Picasso was created modern art as we know today, and everything fundamentally came from there, or modern art as we see it. Picasso made horse, or drew and painted horses before Grote Pernod, before his Guernica horse, and of course before, and before his Le Dame d'Avignon. And he was, in one case, you have a young boy who's holding a horse by the reins. It's a standard scene that you could have seen for the last three, 400 years in, in art. Picasso took us in a different direction, but a direction that he had borrowed from these Pelletha caves. But what's so important is that Picasso, he didn't steal this. What he did was he found the metaphors in these cave images and he set them free. He carried them into into a modern context. And he put, he said that 
in his through his artwork and through Gerdeker, we find that the bull and the bear that are fighting each, over each other in these pale of the caves are also fighting to, in our modern times. That human nature is what it is. And that's what the archetypes are about. That there will always be bulls and bears. There will always be hawks and doves. And those are metaphors that we, or archetypal metaphors as well, that we use for the personalities or the nature of people. And that's what he expressed through his work. And that's what I, I found is the most common archetypes within these images. It's the, the carrying of the animal being formed through this tradition of animism to express the nature of the animal beings as well as the story among people. Fascinating. One thing that I'm reminded of as we discuss this is Joseph Campbell talked a lot about how our society has lost myth and we've lost something along with that. And Peterson hammers home a similar message. And and I think he really draws on Nietzsche, you know, when he says that we've losing Christianity, which Nietzsche was no fan of, but not replacing it with something else was going to have serious consequences. And through that, Nietzsche really predicted, you know, the hundred million people would die from in the 20th century from totalitarianism. And I'm wondering kind of what do you think we've lost and what do you hope your daughter will learn from studying the works of someone like Campbell? Well, Peterson and Campbell and others, what I have my read is that not that we actually lost the myths, that we, is that we lost the gods behind the myths. Okay. And that's a little different. And when we lost and Nietzsche as well, we lost that when, when we shut away the gods, we lost this moral compass. We lost this understanding or our concept of the great divine. We lost this, this social structure that kept us in line. If we put this into perspective, the, the gallery of discs is 34,000 years ago. We can trace the same images to at least seven in the Paleolithic record to Lascaux 17,000 years ago. So we're talking 17,000 years that we had a common culture. That's longer than anything else we could possibly imagine. The Egyptians were probably four, three or 4,000 years long. The Romans were a lot less than that. And then these images or this, actually the Egyptians also borrowed from the Paleolithic in these, the Avianoid, of course, and, and other characters. So what I, I think, or I believe is that when we put the gods away into the closet, when we shut them away and we said that they're, they're not there anymore, we lost that, that moral compass. But what I also, I would disagree with Campbell and I would disagree with Peterson is that we can now find our own moral compass that is not a hierarchical state. And I don't believe that we actually need the gods per se, but we need to keep telling the stories. And we do tell the stories. And I, and I think the perfect example is Star Wars. Star Wars, Luke is about George Lucas, who's fighting with his father through the characters of, of Luke and Darth Vader. And we think of Darth Vader as being the bad guy, but at the end of Vader's life, and I can't remember which movie it was, but it happens and it's not a, this was at least 15 years or 20 years ago, it was done. At the end of Vader's life, he asked Luke to take off his helmet. And in that, we see the humanity in Darth Vader. And so we still tell these myths. We just tell them through different contexts. And instead of that journey across water that Jonah takes in this Paleolithic man swims across Australia or Gibraltar, we go into the, the deepest ocean of the world that we travel, which is space. And through the character of Luke Skywalker and the many others 
that followed him. So I believe that we still tell these myths and we still tell the same stories. We just have, we've changed the characters. We've changed the, the bear to, you know, a, a human character with, with the same characteristics and the bull for the same. And we still call people, you know, that person is bullish or she, or that she, the mother is protective mother bear. And we name out sports teams after these characters. So I'm not convinced that we actually lost the myths and that we've shut the gods away from the, in the closet, but rather we've transferred them into other mediums. And But the stories remain, remain the same. And through these stories, we regulate our moral compass, that we learn that it's not good to kill people. We learn that it's it's better to be have humility and compassion than to be a misogynist. And we see these in the news every day and, and the stories reinforce them. And that's how I see it. But I have a different perspective now than Campbell and Peterson because their view goes back to Gilgamesh. So we're talking 5,000 years ago. I'm taking this back such a long period before. And I believe that we're going to weather all the storms that are in our myths. And from these storms, we each from each storm, we become stronger. And that's all part of us. And that's the metaphors, and the myth that we carry within this, that we can all understand what I just said, because of these archetypal characters and metaphors. I like that. And I actually don't think I won't presume to speak for any of them, but at least certainly I'll say from studying a lot of Peterson's work in particular, I, I don't think he would disagree with that. He actually teaches a lot in his Maps of Meaning course about Pinocchio and Harry Potter and some of those <laughs> modern myths. So yeah. he's very into that as well. The one thing I would say is that I guess they are, you said something about along the lines of, I don't know if we need the hierarchies, sort of, it seemed to allude, and maybe this is just the way I interpreted your comment, that we can construct them. But I think what Jung would say, or certainly Peterson, is that it's not so much constructed as it is revealed or discovered. And yes, it does keep appearing again and again because it's it's Correct. a tipple, but it's almost like it's discovered rather than or revealed rather than constructed. There will always be followers and there's always be leaders. And that will create these hierarchical structures. And whether it be your religion is a big company that you work for, or it's your local church or your synagogue, there's always some sort of hierarchical structure in small groups of people. We have the same thing. And you ask, you know, my daughter, so she's in high school, she's a junior, and she's studying these archetypal characters. And she's studying Odysseus and, and all the, his trials and tribulations and, and tying them into other, into archetypal characters in, in the present modern literature. And I believe that through this investigation she has in a public school, that's absolutely wonderful. She is reliving this past from so long ago. And these stories, these myths are the keel that keep us moving in the same direction. They're the ones that keep us from having anarchy. And she's learning that through the stories themselves. She feels compassion for the characters. In the same way that we watch a movie on TV, or actually we, not on the TV anymore, we stream on our computers, but we, we watch a movie and we, we feel good about one character and we feel horrible at another. But we need those two. We need the good and the evil to establish the dark side and the light side of the force to teach us about who we are and who we may or may not become. Right. Well, I think that is a wonderful place to wrap up, Bernie. This has been a fascinating conversation, but before we do, I want to be sure to give you an opportunity to tell folks where they can find your work and learn more about you and your talks. Sure. 
I've done a few lectures. You can look them on uh, YouTube at beforeRyan.com and dot is spelled out on YouTube, D-O-T. BeforeRyan.com with the actual dot as a period is my webpage. All the book is available on e-formats in every possible way that I've ever heard of. And people can download it in just a minute. Um, you can follow me on Twitter, Bernie Taylor OR, Instagram, Before Orion, as well as Facebook. There's a Before Orion page as well. And if you don't read the book, that's okay, because it's a major work. But follow me on these these social media. Send me a note and you know, look at the images and see what you find in them about yourself. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, take care. This episode has ended, but head over to hackingtheself.org to access all of the resources and links mentioned in today's show, as well as bonus content available exclusively to the show supporters on patreon.com. That's patreon.com slash hacking the self. Thank you for listening to Hacking the Self, optimizing physical, mental, and emotional health through the prism of science, technology, and spirituality.